CEOs and bank balance sheet woes. Why temperament and liquidity keep us on our toes. This is Industry Focus. Hi, fools. Financial analyst Christine Hargis coming to you all the way from the fourth studio instead of the fifth floor studio here at Fool HQ in Alexandria, Virginia. Due to some technical issues, we have had to migrate down a whole floor. But hey, we are still here today with senior banking specialist John Maxfield. John, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Christine. Thank you very much for having me. And just by the way, I, I loved the I loved the rhyme at the beginning. That was great. <laughs> Worked really hard on that one. Thanks, John. <laughs> <laughs> banking can sometimes you don't hear rhymes about banking very much. You don't so, really hear uh, jokes about banking too much. It's very true. But hey, if anyone's going to make it happen, then it will be the Motley Fool. (laughs) That's right. All right. Well, ready to dive in, talk about some banks? Let's do it. All right. So let's start off by taking a look at leadership in banks. Uh, Just how important, John, are these head honchos at the big guys? Well, when you look at, right, I mean, a leader is important at at any company, but they are particularly important at leveraged financial institutions and banks are the most leveraged of leveraged financial institutions um, that are out there. They're typically leveraged 10 to 1. So the decisions that they make, there's a much smaller margin of error um, for the decisions that they make relative to, say, the CEO of Coca-Cola, who Warren Buffett has famously said that a monkey could run that company that just simply isn't true with banks because you need a number of different things there. Number one, you need extreme discipline. So one of the things we've seen over the last few credit cycles, or quite frankly, every credit cycle going back to the beginning of time, is that it is really tempting for a bank to make loans and to really go in hard when the economy is roaring. And then when the economy goes south, they pay for it because a lot of those loans will go will go sour. So your CEO has got to be able to keep their shareholders at bay, keep their employees at bay who want to keep growing, growing, growing when you know when the economy is growing, um, in order to stop those losses on the other side uh, on the other side of the cycle. And then on top of that, you've got to be really focused on expense management, and that is a very boring thing, um, but when it comes to bank, it is critical. So for those two reasons plus the fact that banks are so leveraged, that's why the CEO of a bank is so important relative to, say, the CEO of another just regular company. So one thing that I'm wondering then, if you get a bank with a really awesome CEO, somebody that knows what they're doing, they've been in the industry for as long as it takes to build up that kind of knowledge and expertise, how long do you think they should really stay in there? I mean, is there a, a finite limit? I mean, obviously, you can't have a CEO that's just indefinitely going to, to serve a, as the leader of a big bank. But um, at what point would you say it's appropriate for a transition to be made or whenever you see that sort of, uh, that sort of sign that maybe new leadership is coming in? Is that always like a red flag for you? Well, the, two different things there. Number one... You know, when you get a good CEO, and, and one that comes to mind immediately is Robert William, Wilmers at M&T Bank, it, you just, you might as well keep them as long as possible, as, as you know, so long as they're willing to, to continue working. Wilmers 
has been at the head of M&T since 1983. It wasn't M&T at the time. It was a smaller community bank that then, uh, through mergers and acquisitions, built up into a relatively large bank that is now today M&T. Um, so he's been there for, what, over three decades now. But, you know, so I guess let me just wrap that thought up. So, yes, if you have a good uh, CEO, you want to keep, just keep him as long as possible. I mean, that's, you know, that, that just kind of just is the case with anything, I suppose. But even if you have a really good CEO and, say, they decide to retire at a, at a relatively younger age, if they've done the job right and they've set up a deep bench for people to take over, you know, those executive positions after um, the, for- the previous generation moves out, as long as that culture is instilled, it really shouldn't matter what CEO takes over. But that, is in- that, that job is incumbent upon the current CEO to make sure that the, the, that culture is instilled in subsequent CEOs down the line. Because it's just a natural human tendency, right? You want to move in, you want to, like, you know, the new CEO wants to move in, do fancy things, change things up, put their own imprint on a bank or any type of company. But with banking, you just got to be really, really careful about that. Because, you know, when you have a working model, there's just no reason to change it. So it seems like just as important as having a really awesome CEO is having the steps in place for their succession and making that transition as flawless as you can. That's exactly right. I mean, it it just cannot be emphasized enough how succession is important and an orderly, um, pleasant succession as opposed to a disorderly succession where maybe one CEO is fired and another one comes into play. So there's a couple of different examples that, you know, that you can look at for this. So on one side you have, you know, you know, that kind of the textbook definition of orderly successions and that's Wells Fargo. And this goes back many, many, many decades. And one of the things you would see when you read through their annual reports, if you, you know, if you go through them since, you know, since the 70s, is that every time there's a switch over in CEOs, there's always a period there where both the current CEO and the heir apparent are in photos together. And this seems like a really shallow thing, but it is really important because you're, cha- you're, you're communicating that to your board, you're communicating that to your shareholders, and you're instilling the confidence in your heir apparent that they're going to have to, you know, that they're going to be supported and they're going to have to take over that role. Well, Wells Fargo has been, I mean, they are really, really good at this, and they've instilled that same discipline in U.S. Bank Corps, because if you trace U.S. Bank Corps, you know, leaderships back, they go back to really the golden age of Wells Fargo, which I guess I suppose could be, you know, all of the last 30 years. But really, it, it starts the CEO who ran the company from 1983 to 1994, and he instilled what's called the Wells Way in terms of expense management and credit discipline. And that any the people who worked under that have now taken it to other banks, U.S. Bancorp being one of them. And U.S. Bancorp is really good about succession as well. Now, on the other side of that, you have, let's say, your Citigroups and your Bank of Americas. Both of these banks throughout the years have always had power struggles at the top that have dictated the change in leadership. And quite frankly, all you, know, all you have to do is look at a stock chart or read what happened to them during the financial crisis to see how um, messy successions like that impacts uh, the bottom line and the return to shareholders. So that's awesome. I, I love what you said in there about the, the pictures because that is something that investors can look at and, and take away something very 
very insightful from something as, as simple as just looking at the news and seeing whether or not these pictures are out there. So how else can an investor tell, looking at a bank today, whether or not it is adequately prepping for its line of successors? I mean, it's easy to look back and say, oh, yes, you can see how the culture carried over from one CEO into the next, into the next. But is history all we have to go off of here? Or is there a way that um, investors can look into these businesses and figure out whether or not the next generation of leadership will be as effective? That's a great question. Um, what I would say to that is it is difficult for an individual investor who doesn't follow the personalities at these institutions as closely as, say, somebody like I does, because that's not I do, because that's all I do all day, right? <laughs> but to your point, you can take some really important cues from history and from the culture that has been evident at these banks historically, and one piece of that culture is orderly successions. That is, that is a cultural aspect. So if you have a Wells Fargo, you have a J.P. Morgan that has a history of orderly successions, well, that is probably your best guess, and that's all it is, right? You, you, you know, the past, you know, it is indicative of what will happen in the future, but it certainly isn't dispositive. So I would say look back over history, you know, look at how those transitions have happened at these institutions, um, and if they've been orderly, that's, that's probably your best bet to, to gauge whether that's going to happen uh, going forward. Makes sense. And, you know, this whole concept kind of makes so much sense that what I'm wondering now, is this just a, a bank's thing, or are, should we be looking at the succession of leadership as much in other industries as well? And, and if not, why is it banks in particular that this concept is so important for? Well, this is important for all companies. I would say it, it, as a general rule, this is something you want to see with every single company. Now, there are exceptions to that. Um, you know, if you have a company that is having issues and that CEO, the board determines that, that the, the, the issues um, stem back to that CEO and he needs to go so he's fired or he's asked to resign or he or she is fired or he or she is asked to resign, then that's not going to be so much of an orderly um, transition, right? Um, but when, so, so it, it can be, a good thing, I, I suppose. I mean, that, you know, you have to think in nuances to, a, a little bit. But when it comes to banks, it's so important because, like I said, when you're managing a highly leveraged financial institution, you can't be constantly changing your strategies, and, and particularly if you're at a bank that the strategy is working because banking is fundamentally, it seems really fancy and it seems really complicated, but fundamentally it's a very simple process to run a bank. You've got to keep your expenses low, and you've got to write good loans. And those two things, coincidentally or not coincidentally, are actually related. Um, so if those things are working, you need you know, that orderly successor to come in, to buy into that culture, to buy into what the previous CEO was doing right, and then just kind of continue on the same course as opposed to breaking off onto their own course. Because if they break off onto their own course, and part of that is tweaking that credit discipline, well, all it takes when you're leveraged 10 to 1 is a 10% decline in assets, which happens regularly. All you need is a 10% decline in assets to completely wipe out the capital of the bank. 
Yeah, wow, that uh, says it all. So uh, let's take this concept of banking personalities and leadership and bring it back into bank performance and some actual metrics that we can look at. Um, As you noted, what we really have to watch out for in banks is not so much like are they they pushing and pushing on an everyday basis and, you know, you sit there and every single month you're doing well, that's all great. But really what tends to make the big difference when it comes to investing in banks is these inevitable downturns. And that is make or break for a bank investor. And when you're looking for a good bank investment, you need to find these banks that are going to be okay and survive that kind of credit downturn without just a tremendous hit to the business or wiping it out entirely. So can you connect the dots for me? Um, How exactly does an effective leader uh, perform in this kind of time that, that signals to you that the bank will be okay going forward even after rough economic conditions? So, very good point. So, when you look at banks in general, banks are unusual in in another respect, and that respect is this. You can't look at how a bank is performing when everything is going normal to determine whether or not they're going to be a good investment. The way you ascertain whether a bank is going to be a good investment is to see how well they survive credit, those sharp credit downturns. We had one in 2008, 2009, obviously. We had a huge one uh, in the beginning 90s as a result of commercial real estate. We had another big one in the 80s as a result of, of interest rates. And banks that aren't able to survive those, I mean, like, you know, <laughs> I mean, your, your, your ownership interest in them goes down to zero, right? So it doesn't matter how well they did, you know, in those intervening time periods if your interest, if your, if your interest ultimately goes down to being worth absolutely nothing. So what you need is you need CEOs who are constantly focused on preparing for downturns. And when you look at those downturns, there's, there's two pieces of them. First, there's a credit aspect piece. So the banks that lose their credit discipline as a result, and this generally goes all the way to the top, so they lose their credit discipline, they write bad loans, people learn about them, they go under, they get taken over by the government, blah, 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 blah. But then there's a second aspect to that. After you have that first wave of failures, there is typically a contagion aspect where investors, whether they're institutional investors or individual investors, get worried that all the other banks are in the same situation. So it's a contagion aspect. Well, in order to survive the contagion aspect, you've got to maintain what Jamie Dimon at J.P. Morgan Chase calls a fortress balance sheet. And one of the aspects of a fortress balance sheet is a good lending base, or a good funding base, rather. And what that means is that, so when you go through bad crises, when investors or creditors get concerned about a bank, they stop. They start pulling their funding. When they pull their funding, banks are forced to sell their assets at rock-bottom price, and then that can push them into insolvency. So you can be a really good bank going into a crisis, write good loans, do all those things, but then if the contagion aspect kicks in and you're forced to sell your assets at rock-bottom prices, then like I said earlier, you know, a 10% decline in the value of your assets can push you into insolvency. So you've got to make sure that you stay liquid enough that you can satisfy those demands um, uh, on that second, that contagion aspect of a crisis. And, and that is something that CEOs can help make sure happens by always staying vigilant even during times uh, when the economy is going well. And what determines that liquidity? So, 
on the asset side, what determines your liquidity is just whether you're how much you know you're invested in loans versus how much you're investing in government securities versus how much you keep in cash. But on the funding side, you have a number of different layers of, uh, uh, of funding. So you have your deposit base, right? So you and I, we have checking accounts. We deposit money with the bank. Those are that is a great funding source for banks because you just your typical people don't follow the financial news as closely as say investors do or other creditors in the industry. And so it's those people who get scared and pull their funds out of a bank and then force the bank to, to liquidate their assets and fire sell prices. So you want a good deposit base. Then on top of that, the next best source is long-term loans. So banks make loans, but they also get loans in order to leverage up their capital and to buy assets. Well, if, you're, if you have long-term loans, when you're going through a crisis, those loans can't be called, presuming that you know the, 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 the maturity date doesn't actually just coincide with the downturn. So those are that's a safe form of funding. But the, the, the really problematic uh, part of funding is, are short-term loans. So you, these can be made in the form of either over the repo market, which are generally overnight loans. They can be in the, the Fed funds market, which are also typically overnight loans. Those ones, when the next day comes around, your creditor can decide not to re-up those loans. And so when they pull that liquidity, well, I mean, you know, we saw what happened to Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns in the financial crisis. So you want to stay away from that short, the over-reliance on short-term funding. And over the last maybe six or seven years, we've seen banks move away from that, which in my estimation means that they're probably safer now than they were before the crisis. So as you've already started to allude to, this has been something that we've seen come into play in the past. Let's keep strolling down memory lane. Um, can you talk about some examples where maybe a lack of liquidity was a, a detriment to a bank in our, our last financial crisis or maybe before that? Yeah, so we've seen this every single panic, every single banking panic we've been through. We have seen this liquidity element, this funding source element, come in and have a huge impact on otherwise healthy banks. Now, it also impacts banks that are not healthy, of course. So in the last crisis, the reason Bear Stearns failed, or it didn't actually fail, but it was going to fail, had J.P. Morgan not stepped in to purchase it, the reason that happened is because all of their creditors were pulling their funding from Bear Stearns. You look at Lehman Brothers, it was the same exact thing. Yes, they had credit issues, there's no question about it, but the actual reason they, they failed was because their creditors were pulling all their funding. You can go back to probably the first big uh, banking run in this regard, in like kind of your modern regard, where, where it's your creditors pulling short-term funds as opposed to depositors lining up outside of banks, which is what we saw uh, during the Great Depression. The first modern uh, banking run was in 1984 when uh, Continental Illinois, which was at the time the seventh largest bank in the United States, when it failed and it went on to become, that's where the term too big to fail was coined, was when Continental Illinois failed. I mean, it was the same thing. There were issues on the credit side, but the issues at Continental Illinois, those credit issues alone were not enough to make the bank fail. What led the bank to fail was the fact that all their their funding sources dried up, so they were forced to go hat in hand to the government to ask for liquidity, and the, the amount of liquidity they needed was so large that the government eventually just nationalized them. 
So clearly we have lots of lessons to learn from these past experiences. And, you know, that's the billion dollar question right there. What has the industry as a whole done since this last bout? And where do you see it going in the future? Um, where, where do we stand today? Well, we are in a, we're in a, in terms of liquidity, the industry is in a much better position today than they were before the crisis. So take Bank of America as an example. Going into the crisis, about 30% or about a third of their funding came in the form of the short-term loans, Right. You fast forward to today, that's down to something like 15 or 16 percent. So, and and Bank of America's, from from what I've seen, is pretty representative of the industry in this regard. So, on the liquidity side, things are looking better for the industry now. What investors need to keep in mind is that, you know, doing this in the bank industry where you're increasing liquidity and shoring up your balance sheet that has an invariable impact on your profitability. All things being equal, this is going to reduce profitability by, I would think, I don't, it's, you know, it's hard to say how many percentage points, but I would say a couple to a few percentage points when you're looking at return on equity. So you've got to keep in mind that a safer bank is not always, in the short run, a more profitable bank. But over the long run, because they won't get into trouble when those downturns happen, that is where the real money is for bank investors. Right, and that's the difference in being a short-term and a long-term investor. That's exactly right. Yep. Well, anyway, John, thanks so much for your insight today and for bearing with us through some of our, our tech issues. Uh, it's been great talking to you, as always. Um, for those of us listening in today, thanks for your time as well. And be sure to check out more from the Industry Focus podcast, as well as Fool.com for all of your investing needs. Full on.